You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Molly Haskell about the relationship of Gone with the Wind with its creators and the American public. What you have to remember is that there were really two sides to her, that she really was a sort of Jekyll and Hyde, and Scarlet was one side of her. She was this flapper rebel, and she misbehaved in her youth. And then Melanie kind of took over. But I think while she was writing the book, I, I think Scarlet, she said later that Scarlet sort of got away with her. I think she... She says she intended to make Melanie the heroine, and I have no reason to disbelieve that. And Joyce Lee Malcolm about how a young man purchases a slave in pre-revolutionary Massachusetts experienced the Revolutionary War. It was extremely exciting. I had no idea. I mean, when I first started to investigate uh, the background to that bill of sale, I wasn't even sure he had lived or that I could find his biological parents. I had no idea what happened to him. So it was very exciting to discover that uh, his regiment was actually at Bunker Hill, um, and then that later he served in a you know, series of, of enlistments, finally uh, ending up at, um, at Yorktown. Stay tuned. In 1936, Gone with the Wind was published, and three years later, the film version was released, both to wild acclaim. The successes of both the book and the film took its toll on its creators, and in her new book, Frankly My Dear, Gone with the Wind Revisited, Molly Haskell not only looks at the effect of Gone with the Wind on the lives of Margaret Mitchell, David O. Selznick, and Vivian Lee, but also on the American and particularly Southern imagination. Molly Haskell is a writer and a film critic. She's lectured widely on the role of women in film and is the author of From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies. Molly Haskell, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Thank you, Chris. So when were you first aware of Gone with the Wind? You know, I don't even know. I mean, it was so much part of my life. There are people, a lot of friends I have who know exactly when they read it. They stayed up all New Year's Eve reading it when they were 13 or 14. Um, For me, it was really more like something you grew up with, like part of the family or the Bible. And I'm not even sure whether I read the book first or saw the movie. I'm pretty sure I read the book first. But then the two became so fused in my mind. And uh, this, the, the movie's so vivid that it kind of takes over, but I was startled when I reread the book recently to see how much I didn't remember, how many scenes, that, so kind of interest, some interesting scenes that didn't make it into the movie. One of the more surprising things I've learned from your book is, well, I learned all about Margaret Mitchell because I've not read the book. I've seen the movie a couple of times, and I was rather surprised by Margaret Mitchell's apparent surprise at how popular Scarlett O'Hara was, but I wasn't sure after reading your book if that was really genuine surprise on her part. Well, you never know with her because she's very cagey, and you can even see if you read her letters that there's this c- careful crafting of a persona and also sort of telling people what they want to hear. But what you have to remember is that there were really two sides to her, that she really was a sort of Jekyll and Hyde, and Scarlet was one side of her. She was this flapper rebel, and she misbehaved in her youth. And then Melanie kind of took over. But I think while she was writing the book, I, I think Scarlet, she said later that Scarlet sort of got away with her. I think she she says she intended to make Melanie the heroine, and I have no reason to disbelieve that. But the Scarlet was the, the sort of the id just, just took over. and But then I think there were a lot of fears even while she was writing it because 
She was afraid of, of, of libel. She, her whole family was in copyright law, so she was exposing people. She was afraid of that. She was just afraid. She was skeptical about a lot of the myths that the South told itself. So I think this is one reason why she was dragging her heels and keeping this big thing a secret, because she was afraid of that. And so then she began to sort of disavow Scarlett because she knew that to stay a good, I mean, for a Southerner to stay a good member of the tribe means you don't make a public display of yourself. So she really wanted to kind of get her distance from Scarlett when the book came out, I think. So I think it was both. I think it was both conscious and intuitive. You know, it's hard for people maybe nowadays to think about it, particularly since Gone with the Wind is such a part of the American conscious, the consciousness that uh, she also seemed to be a little concerned with how it would be received in Atlanta because, as you also point out, uh, be above all else, Margaret Mitchell was an Atlantan, and she had to deal with that society in the 1920s and 30s. Exactly. That's right. She really didn't care. I mean, she was, she was a little thin-skinned when the northern press or the liberal press would attack it, but she cared much more about Atlanta. That's why she was so nervous about the movie because all right, the book had come out, and they had accepted it, and, it, and this which was no certain thing when she was writing it, so it really was a fairly bold thing for her to do, to publish it. This, this is what, why the sort of clinging to the manuscript to the last possible minute, but it was accepted, and then what would they do with the movie? They might make, make, every, make the plantation look ridiculous. They would say things about the South that she wouldn't like, and she would be embarrassed before her friends, and this, I think this was her, her uh, a huge... Um, force for her was what the impact would be on Atlantans, both of the book and the movie. I thought it was very funny, though. Even though she was trying to distance herself from the movie, she still couldn't give it up. Could you talk about how she was able to find out what was going on during the filming? Yeah, well, she had, she had a friend who she proposed. That, of course, David Selznick was dying to get her on board. He did everything he could to get her to come out to Hollywood. He sent her memos and letters asking her about everything from what Mammy's bandana should look like, and she just scoffed at all this. And she took a pose of complete detachment from it, yet she had recommended this woman who would, who then became the kind of um, etiquette uh, expert on the set. In fact, two people, one an architect and one this woman who was the, the expert. And through her, she got sort of daily or weekly reports about what was going on, so she knew absolutely everything, and she was prepared for it. I think she just didn't want to be blindsided by some horrible, vulgar movie that would just, that she would have to go hide for the rest of her life. So I was the success of the book and then for the film, was it an unqualified positive for Margaret Mitchell's life? I mean, was did she enjoy the success of the book no, and then the movie went on? Not at all. I think, especially the movie, the book, I think even that uh, was upsetting to her. But just, she couldn't, she, it was just beyond belief. No, she couldn't have anticipated that. And she was a private person and she did enjoy her privacy and suddenly she wasn't. But when the movie came along, it was just magnified to a thousand degrees. I mean, she had people coming, knocking on the door, wanting to her, her to help them get cast in it, and she refused to uh, to get involved with the production. But she was she was a nice Southern lady and a host, a hostess, and so she agreed to show anybody around when they came. So she was always sort of on call when members of the production team came down and wanted to see costumes and settings and locations. She was very obliging about all that, but. The, the man, and she finally said she would she would not sign any more autographs. I mean, you can imagine how many she'd been, how many times her autograph had been sought when the book came out. And she was a huge local celebrity, and then a, a national one. She won the Pulitzer Prize, so it just turned her life upside down. And although there may have been uh, some little mis, 
some regret when she got older and nobody was paying attention to her anymore. I think it was mostly a relief because it just wasn't something she was prepared to cope with, and she didn't really handle it very well. I mean, she just would have to make ultimatums like no more autographs, and she hated to make speeches. Her mother had been a wonderful speaker, sort of activist, and Margaret wasn't like that at all. She didn't like to make speeches. It was painful for her, and she would do it to a few of the causes she was committed to, but she just tried to stay out of public life, and public life wouldn't let her. David Selznick is another major character in your book, obviously the producer of the film. Uh, did the film come close to what he thought it was going to be? Well, I'm not sure he, he even had a, a picture of the whole before he went into it. This was one of the, the interesting things about a producer anyway. It's not like, I'm not, not like a director who really does have a vision of it. He didn't really, and that's why he had to call upon so many visionary people, or at least people with visual expertise. He was one who, who was, he was a fanatic over, on details, and particularly the t- details like women's dress. And he had to call upon others to, for design, for overall design, for art direction and that. But at least he had the best that money could buy. So in a way, it was put together over, uh, with varying forms of expertise. But he did, to his credit, uh, stay abreast of everything and somehow miraculously the thing did fuse into into a whole. It may not be the greatest artistic achievement ever, but it has a kind of greatness and it and it moves like like the blazes. So, he, yeah. I was going to say, you know, and we'll get to Vivian Lay in a moment, because when one thinks of Gone with the Wind, I mean, and this is not to be dismissive anyway, one thinks of it as an, uh, primarily an, uh, a book written for women and with a very much a, a female focus. But reading your book, I really got a sense of between David Selznick and then to the degree that, that uh, Victor Fleming became the director and George Cukor was kicked out for whatever machinations were going on uh, between Clark Gable at all, that there is still kind of a male, like a male stamp on the film itself. Completely, and I think, well, the, the book paves the way for this, because I think even though you don't have actual war scenes, there's really a sense of battle, and there's something very bold, and it's not just affairs of the heart. She really c- captures what, what the devastation of war, or what it's like. It's not just the, the, sort of the women at home and the men out at battle, so even though you don't have actual battle scenes and you're not in the battlefield, it's, it's not just a kind of passive reaction to war. Um, and the film even more, I think, because because of Victor Fleming as this macho director who did put not not just on say battle scenes and and or, or the the scenes of the soldiers and those um, sort of non-feminine aspects of it, but I think the speed. I think the problem with Cooker, he he just fussed over every detail, and his the scenes he did direct are wonderful, but they are very detailed, and they needed some. The film needed a tempo because it was going to be long anyway, so there had to be somebody who could just a little bit run roughshod over some of the minutiae that Cooker would have wanted. So I think that's true, and I think, though, men who dismiss it call it a women's picture. I think there are a lot of men who, who liked it, who liked it when they were younger and who like it today. I run into this all the time, men who love that film. And there were there were some there were some reservations expressed when it came out that there weren't battle scenes. That was one of the the objections that some male critics had to it, and yet there is a, 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 a masculine element to it. And Scarlett herself, there's something 
so she's not like the typical woman's film heroine who pines and pines. She pines for love, but that didn't stop her from doing a dozen other things as well. Let's move to Scarlett herself, the actress Vivian Lee. Um, this was her first American film, if I'm not mistaken. I, in the casting of Scarlett O'Hara, is now kind of p- passed on into a Hollywood legend. Was it a good thing for her to play Scarlett O'Hara? And I know that sounds like an odd question, considering that it's one of the iconic film roles, but how was her life changed by the movie? Well, I think her life was was changed by it, but more it was changed by her relationship with Laurence Olivier, and that the two are sort of intertwined at this point, because she made the movie, she was spectacular in it. Well, first of all, I think that it took so much out of her and Selznick. I mean, Selznick was changed afterward, and so was she. I think they had used up sort of a lifetime of emotional and psychological energy and obsessiveness in it. And she was a little bit fragile to begin with, and and later she was these symptoms that had just been emerging during Gone with the Wind became sort of full-blown. There was mania and depression and tuberculosis. But I think her affair with Olivier was as obsessive uh, to her as was the film. And she was part of the feverish came from her wanting to get through the film and get back to Olivia. I mean, they were working, they were doing things that she'd never anticipated doing, like going, doing these scenes on location on the farm and starting at 5.30 in the morning. And so it was a, just a, a back-breaking schedule. But she still wanted to finish on time and get back to him. She was just beside herself with love for him. And his attitude, when he saw the film, he saw that she how great she was and that she would be a bigger star in movies than he would. And I think he sort of gave up on movies at that point. And he dedicated himself completely to the theater, and she took her cue from him. So she wanted him even more than she wanted a career, but what she wanted was a career with him in the theater. So she might have had a great movie career, but she put herself in his hands and to her disadvantage, I think. It does make one wonder if she ever, if she could have played Blanche Dubois effectively if she did had she not played Scarlett O'Hara. Well, I, I don't think I, it's true. I think she learned so much playing that role. She, uh, people always said she gave more to it than it gave to her, but I think it gave her a lot too. And certainly, she became, in, in this strange way, the sort of Southern Belle uh, at both ends of the spectrum: the Southern Belle in her prime and the Southern Belle on the wane. And she was magnificent in both. Finally, I want people to realize that the book the book is not just about the history of Gone with the Wind as far as how it was written, how the book went forward. It's also your personal reflections and how America was changed by Gone with the Wind. Um, you're from the South, and I was curious if you think now in the 21st century that the book has the same resonance with Southerners, and particularly the resonance with Southern women you talk about when, when you first read it. Well, you know, I really don't know. I'm very curious to find out. I hope I do. I hope I'll have a chance to talk with some young women. And my feeling is... I mean, I don't know how they can avoid it because their mothers would press it upon them or would have talked about it. But whether they'll respond to it in the same way, I don't know. On the one hand, uh, it's true that, you know, some of the aspects like slavery and the the sort of feudal plantation society are mercifully bygone. But I think Scarlet is pretty modern, sometimes uncomfortably so. I mean, Madonna, survival at any cost, sex in the city, shopaholics. These are two contemporary versions of Scarlet, but of course... It may be that today's young women don't want to see it that way. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it. If Scarlett was alive instead of instead of you know wandering the streets of Atlanta in post Civil War America, she might have been up in New York drinking cosmopolitans with uh, <laughs> everybody else, <laughs> and in the highest heels you can ever imagine. <laughs> well, <laughs> Molly Haskell, the author, frankly, my dear, go out the wind revisited. Thanks so much for talking to Yale University Press today. Thank you, Chris. I enjoyed it. Frankly, my dear, Gone with the Wind Revisited is on sale now. 
For more information, go to the website, www.yalebooks.com. Slavery in America was not limited to the South. Up until the late 1700s, one could find slaves in New England. And in her new book, Peter's War, A New England Slave Boy in the American Revolution, Joyce Lee Malcolm looks at the life of one of those slaves, a boy named Peter who was purchased at a very young age and went on to fight against the British in some of the most important battles of the Revolutionary War. Joyce Lee Malcolm is professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. Joyce Lee Malcolm, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So how did you first learn about Peter, the slave boy at the center of your book? Well, several years ago, I was working on a research project for Minuteman National Historical Park, which is dedicated to preserving the site at the first battle of the Revolution as it went through Lincoln and Lexington and Concord. And in looking through the deeds and wills for one of the families in the park, uh, Josiah and Elizabeth Nelson, mixed in with these deeds and wills and tax records, I found this bill of sale for what was described as a Negro servant boy named Peter, uh, one year, seven months old. And that's how I came across it, just a simple piece of paper. Um, and it was very startling because uh, it, you're not used to thinking about slavery in the North and in these little towns, and also be, in particular because it involved a child so young who was sold by himself. Why was that so unusual? Well, you normally think that nobody is going to be much of a servant who's 19 months old. And so, it, you know, the idea that was that somebody was going to have to look after this child for years and years before he was going to be, um, you know, a valuable helper around the farm or in the kitchen. Um, and also the uh, documents for the sale of slaves are extremely rare to find, at least in Massachusetts. I suspect that people who did buy slaves, you know, over the years carefully um, disposed of these documents. So here was one family that had saved it, and among the few papers that they had of the properties that they had bought. Um, I think it was also um, less unusual than I had first thought, because in the South, where uh, people had a lot of slaves, um, they would have some women, uh, Negro women, looking after the children while their parents worked. But in New England, where there were very few, and where they lived in the home along with their owners uh, and worked with them and ate at the same table usually, um, any children would really be underfoot. And so unlike the South, if, uh, these, if a slave had a child, uh, it would really be a kind of burden uh, for everyone. And they were much more likely to sell that child. Uh, and in fact, women who, who were barren were regarded as as uh, more valuable in the North uh, than women who could have children. So I guess the question is, uh, why did the family who purchased him, given all these things you talked about, why did they bother buying him? Do, or what do we know about the family? Well, uh, when I found the paper, I didn't know anything about him, and it was one of those documents that really was haunting. I couldn't forget it. So when I began to look into it, I discovered that the people who bought him had been married for 14 years, and they had no children. And so I think that um, they wanted to have a child in the house that would be a help. A lot of the people who had slaves were either people who had no children or people who 
had a lot of land or, or business that they needed help with. Um, and also, I think that it was a mark of prestige because usually in a little town like Lincoln, Massachusetts, it was only the most wealthy people that owned slaves. And a, a child was obviously very much cheaper than buying uh, an adult who was really going to be useful at once. But it also meant, you know, years of, of looking after this little boy uh, until he really would be a helper. The other odd thing would have been, I would think that uh, since they were a childless couple, it would have made sense that the or it would have been natural for the woman to bond with Peter as though she were his own child. But yet, he never really was going to be their child. He always had a separate, um, I guess, a separate legal uh, existence in the state of Massachusetts. How were they able to get around that, or were they ever able to get around it? I don't know. I mean, it, that was a, a question that really puzzled me. I, as a, a woman and a and a mother, I can't see how Elizabeth Nelson could possibly have raised this child and kept some kind of distance from him. I mean, there, it would seem to me impossible to do. Um, and I suspect that within the family, uh, there were just the three of them, she, her husband, and Peter for many years, that it must have been a very, a fairly close relationship but in public, particularly when they went to church, for instance. Um, Black sat apart. And I think in that case, he would have had to be in the gallery with the rest of the blacks. And his mother, uh, his biological mother, lived in Lexington, where that he went to church. And I'm sure that he was with her on those occasions. But, it, you know, it, it was a very difficult kind of relationship. And I suspect that, that originally Peter's biological parents and probably Peter himself thought that he might inherit at some point um, some of the land that Josiah was amassing quite a lot of, of uh, land in his farm. And, you know, there must have been some hope that he would have gotten something. I guess it's something we should uh, specify is that, you know, unlike in the, the South or, I guess, traditional thought about when s slave children were sold, they were sold away from their parents and, you know, the family is broken up and they never saw that again. But Peter knew both of his biological parents. Yes, they lived close by. They were owned by different people and, and lived in different towns, but his father lived in Lincoln and uh, was owned by uh, the Brooks family, who had a tannery and a large farm. And his mother lived in Lexington and was owned by a very prominent family who uh, the husband was the, uh, the representative to uh, the general court, which was Massachusetts legislature from Lexington. Uh, and he knew that he would have known them both because they were really within an easy distance. But it was rather difficult for the two parents because they didn't live together. Well, the full title of the book is Peter's War, A New England Slave Boy in the American Revolution. So let's talk a little bit about the American Revolution. Could you take us back to the discussions that were going on within Massachusetts about whether blacks should serve in militias? Was it very, well, I imagine it was somewhat controversial. Yes, it was. And, and it varied. You know, in the early uh, days of settlement, everyone served and the, and the blacks served too. And then... In the um, early 18th century, they didn't, um, and later on they weren't supposed to, but in fact, um, many of them did. I mean, there were free Negroes and free, free blacks, and they served voluntarily. Um, often the, um, the slaves of someone who was active in the militia, the captain or uh, the captain of Minutemen, uh, would come along with them. So even though the rules might have been against it in practice, they seemed to have um, often uh, served or certainly on important occasions turned out, and they seemed to be very 
uh, familiar with weapons, so there wasn't any difficulty. And in that first battle, running Battle of the Revolution, there were about almost 30 um, blacks, sort of mixed, half slave, half free, who participated. And probably there were a good number more because we don't have complete records of everyone who took part. So they seem to have come out and, and were treated, you know, uh, with equal respect. And in, the, in that very first clash on the Lexington Green, um, one of those who stood with a small band of Minutemen, uh, about 70 of them hoping to intimidate the 900 British soldiers who were on their way, was Prince Estabrook, who was um, a, a slave who belonged to um, one of the, the Minutemen, and he was injured in that, in that first attack. Now, Peter's experience was in Massachusetts, but in the book you draw a parallel between the war that Peter was experiencing and the war that a slave named Titus, who was from New Jersey, was experiencing. How was Titus's war different than Peter's? Well, Titus belonged to a very cruel man. Actually, he was a Quaker, but an unusual Quaker and being very harsh uh, with slaves and even having slaves. And he escaped uh, when he was about 21 and headed south. And that was in the fall of 1775. Um, the governor of Virginia had issued a proclamation inviting black slaves who, uh, to come in to the British side and serve the British Army, and they would be free. And he didn't know about this proclamation when he uh, started fleeing, but it was generally thought that something like that was going to happen. And he turned himself in uh, to the British Army in Virginia and was trained with um, other uh, refugees uh, in a special unit. It was not integrated. It was this, um, called the Ethiopian Regiment. And later, um, when the, his uh, regiment and others went to New York to converge with the other uh, troops that the British were amassing, um, he was chosen to lead a guerrilla band because he knew the back country of New Jersey so well. So he actually ended up leading a band of both blacks white indentured servants and others who would appear out of the woods at night and free slaves and steal um, cattle and burn houses as the, the patriots in the area. He became quite a feared and famous guerrilla leader. I understand in that situation why Titus would fight for the British because, as you mentioned, part of the British strategy was to try to break off uh, the slaves and um, black Americans to fight for their freedom. Do we know why men like Peter and Peter's father ended up fighting for the uh, the country that had enslaved them? Yes, that's, that's much more difficult to understand, certainly at the very beginning of the war, because there was a lot of doubt about whether it was appropriate to have slaves or former slaves fighting, and Washington wasn't very keen on it. Um, wasn't, it was not until the British started to invite them in that the uh, Continental Army decided to recruit them. I think that there were people like Peter uh, and others who really felt a part of the community and, and sympathized with the issues that were raised and perhaps were hoping that people who were fighting for their freedom, for their own freedom, uh, couldn't, in good conscience, continue to keep slaves. And there had been some pressure in the North uh, for freeing the slaves in emancipation. As far as Peter's father went, Jupiter, um, in 1777, when he joined the Lexington Regiment, the Continental Army was having trouble recruiting uh, soldiers. And so in Massachusetts, those who agreed to serve for three years were offered their freedom. 
And so in the regiment that uh, Jupiter joined, there were a group of other slaves who joined. And Jupiter, when he first joined, took the name Free as his last name, Jupiter Free, uh, you know, a sort of great jubilation that uh, by this way he could free himself. Um, in, the, in the Middle Atlantic states, some slaves served as substitutes on the promise that they would get their freedom. Um, often they didn't, whereas in Massachusetts they seemed to have uh, honored that commitment. Finally, I kept getting a thought while I was reading the book that in some ways Peter was kind of the Forrest Gump of the American Revolution in that he seemed to be at so many pivotal moments of the war, particularly battles. How unusual is it for an historian like you to just not only discover Peter's story, but to find out he was at all these different places? It was extremely exciting. I had no idea. I mean, when I first started to investigate uh, the background to that bill of sale. I wasn't even sure he had lived or that I could find his biological parents. I had no idea what happened to him. So it was very exciting to discover that uh, his regiment was actually at Bunker Hill um, and then that later he served in a you know, series of, of enlistments, finally uh, ending up at, um, at Yorktown, the Battle of Yorktown. So it was tremendously exciting, and it also enabled me to sort of place him in a way I wouldn't otherwise have, because someone like Peter didn't leave any direct records. I mean, I knew where he went, but I didn't have his voice. And so this helped me to really kind of flesh out the, the world that he lived in. So it was extremely exciting. I feel very fortunate to have uh, uncovered his life and to have had that glimpse into what that world was like. Did Peter die a free man? Yes, he was free. He was free um, during the course of the war, um, be, actually before he joined the Continental Army. Um, Josiah Nelson freed him. I think uh, Lincoln needed recruits, and they had a certain quota of men that they had to contribute, and he agreed to free him. Um, so he did die a free man. And in fact, in the, in, by the end of the war, Massachusetts uh, had freed the slaves. Their new constitution, which was written by John Adams, uh, had a Bill of Rights that proclaimed that all men are born free and equal. And the Supreme Judicial Court decided that slavery was inconsistent with that right. Um, but, it, but it was sort of sad because at the end, um, Peter comes back to, to Lincoln, which is all you know, the only place that he really knew his home. Um, but he and other slaves are former slaves, I should say, um, are still kind of considered others. So you have in the first federal census all of these columns for the white, free white males and their families. And then there's a column for others. The first one came out in 1790. And um, for Lincoln, there were no slaves, but there were six others, and one of them was Peter. Peter's War, a New England slave boy in the American Revolution, is on sale now. For more information, go to the website, www.yalebooks.com. I know, I know. You're coming down from that Super Bowl high, despondent over what you're going to do with all that time you used to use watching the NFL. Well, well, Yale University Press has you covered with our half-off book sale. Just go to www.yalebooks.com and look for the half-off sale banner on the front page. And... Instead of rooting for the Cardinals or the Steelers, you can root for Georgia O'Keeffe or Benjamin Franklin, among others.
Subscribing to the feed to the Yale Press podcast couldn't be easier. You can either go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast or go to any podcast aggregator and search for the Yale Press podcast. And for good measure, if you have any comments or questions about the show, we can be reached at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press podcast. Heather Diore is the executive producer. Stephen Cray is the editor. And my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2009. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.